This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, thank you all, and I can't wait till tonight at 6.30, and that's not to be missed as our worship team presents Jesus Saved, and we celebrate the resurrection together. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to break from our study of Mark for the next two weeks and look at the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which tells us really about the heart of the gospel. And this morning, we're going to talk about getting the gospel right. Getting the gospel right. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. This is one of the earliest Christian formulations of the, the gospel that we see in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's something that we want to be absolutely clear about. And the Apostle Paul was very clear here about the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, and let's begin with verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I received, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born He appeared also to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that is transforming us, that saves us. We pray that you would help us to bask in that, to rejoice in it today. We pray that you would use it to prepare our hearts to take part in the supper that you ordained later in this service. So, Father, speak to us now about the riches, the glories of the gospel, that we might know it well, love it more, and share it more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine that people are sitting in in Starbucks one day, When a man bursts through the door and he says, folks, can I have your attention? I want to announce good news. Now, the people sitting there sipping their lattes are beginning to ask questions at that point. Who is this guy? What good news is he talking about? And then what would compel him to announce it to total strangers? Well, scenario one. It's Super Bowl Sunday, and his team, which has been mired in mediocrity for years, has just won the big game. And so he announces to these patrons and and, and Starbucks, uh, you're never going to believe it. I never thought it would happen again. 
The Redskins have won. For the first time since 1992, we have won. Well, he's talking to the wrong crowd. You know, the folks sitting there sipping their their flat whites, if they cared anything about the Super Bowl, Starbucks would be the last place that they would be. One of the few places in public life without a TV screen. More seriously, (laughs) scenario number two, this man has just heard good news about his daughter who has been ill and, and a doctor has told him that uh, that she is, is is actually on the road to recovery and of course that that really is wonderful news for that family but these people are sitting there thinking why are you an- announcing this to us well this passage is about good news that really is for everybody and It's something, therefore, that is to be announced to everybody. Maybe not by bursting through the door and interrupting people at Starbucks, but certainly over cups of coffee at Starbucks. And certainly over lots of meals and certainly in lots of conversations wherever we find ourselves. Because this news changes lives. And it changes eternities. But if that's the case, then we need to know that we've got it. Right. You know, sometimes news can get muddled. Sometimes news can be flat out wrong. There's an iconic photograph of uh, President Truman uh, holding up the, uh, the November 3rd, 1948 edition of the Chicago Tribune. Now, the president has a, a gleeful look on his face for a man who just lost the election, right? Uh, Dewey defeats Truman, the banner headline says. Well, he's smiling because uh, that's not the case. (laughs) Truman actually defeated uh, Dewey. The, the, The news got it wrong. This is not news that we can afford to be wrong about. The good news of the gospel. And so let's ask this morning, what did the early Christians mean when they talked about the gospel. Let's advance the slide. Thank you. Yeah. What, did the, what did the gospel mean to the early Christians? Did it mean asking Jesus into your heart? Did it mean a type of music? Did it mean having your best life now? It didn't mean any of those things. What did the gospel mean to the early Christians? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wonder about that. We know what the early Christians thought about the gospel from this text. And the first thing that we see about it is that it was good news. The gospel is good news. Let's look together at verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, remember, we've talked about before that the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It's a combination of of two things. The word angelos in Greek means one who announces news. And then the prefix eu, E-U, means joyful. So the gospel is literally news that brings joy. It's joyful news. It would usually be used in the first century of, of, of heralds. You know, in a world without modern communications, the way that they found out good news, big good news, is that heralds, gospelers, 
would be sent into cities where people were gathered and they would there announce the, the good news to people. The most famous example of this is a legendary example of when the Greeks defeated the Persians on the plains of Marathon. And as legend has it, a runner, a herald, ran 26 miles from the battle site at Marathon into Athens, and he ran into the assembly, uh, to the assembly there, and he announced, victory is ours, we have won! And then he dropped dead. But this is news that brings life because someone died for us. And we see that here in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now this presumes something. If, if, Christ di- if the good news is that Christ died for our sins... Uh, The presumption here is that sin is a problem. We can look around the world and see that it's a problem, right? My dad used to watch when I was a little kid every night. He would at 630, he would watch the CBS evening news with Walter Cronkite. And uh, I would often want him to change the channel. And so I would say, hey, daddy, why do you want to watch this bad news? And he would chuckle at me. uh, But he never disagreed with me that it was bad news. It usually was. And it hasn't gotten any better. But the problem is just not just that the bad news is out there in the world. The problem is that it's in here. It's in our hearts. Most of us in this room today have very high ideals for how we want to live our lives. Very high ideals for how we want to treat other people and, and, uh, and, 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 and so forth. But we each find that we often fall short of our highest ideals. And oftentimes we, 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 we would want to say with the Apostle Paul, as Paul says in, in Romans 7 and verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What's wrong with us? Clearly something deep within us has gone awry. It's because we're sinners. We're not just sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we are sinners. But you know what? It's not even our worst problem. Our worst problem is not that we are sinners. Our worst problem is how a holy God feels about our sin. Because God is holy and righteous, God is morally obligated to judge sin, to punish sin. But what if I told you that the judge has become our savior? What if I told you that the judge has taken the judgment that we deserved in our place? What if I told you that that, that God the judge became a human being, lived the perfect life that we could never live, and then died on a cross to take the judgment that we deserved? And what if I furthermore told you that this God rose from the dead and conquered death in our place. Listen, that would be good news indeed. That's the news that is being shared here. What does he say in in verse 4? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when Paul here talks about the resurrection of Christ, why does he mention the fact that Jesus was buried? 
Why does he mention which day he was raised on? It's because Paul wants to make it very clear that this was a real body that was put into the tomb. And that he rose on a a, a real day in history. He wants to do away with any nonsense that this was some sort of a spiritual event. No, this was very much a physical event. He was buried. A body was buried. A, A body rose on a real day. And so all the nonsense that you hear about, you know, oh, well, well, I, you know maybe, maybe Jesus was raised in a spiritual sense. Or, you know, Jesus, Jesus lives on in the hearts of his followers. That's the very kind of nonsense that Paul wants to rule out here completely. Now, this is a, this is a real body, really dead, really buried, and really risen. And then, beginning in verse 5, he begins to call out the witnesses. He says here in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And for people who are tempted to say, well, you know, these guys, these are first century guys. You know, they're primitive guys. They're, they're prone to believe things like resurrection. World-class scholars like N.T. Wright have shown that people in the first century were in no way inclined to believe in, the, in, in resurrection. It was the last thing that they were expecting. And certainly these guys, these, these are not, you know, new agey, mystical type guys. They're fishermen. Uh, in one case, a tax collector. In, 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 in other cases, uh, businessmen. Down, they were very down-to-earth types of guys. They weren't inclined. They weren't expecting resurrection. The last thing they were expecting. They were in the process of going back to their old jobs, their own lives. The game was over. But now suddenly, they're devoting their lives to going around and preaching that Jesus was risen. And not only that... In most cases, they were going to give their lives. They were going to die as martyrs rather than recant their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, would you willingly die for something that you knew to be a lie? Again in verse 6, Paul says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why would he add the parenthetical comment that most of them are still alive? It's because he's invited them. Check it out. You want to talk with them? Most of them are still alive. You can do it. Now, why in the world would you invite people to check it out if you had any doubt about what they were going to say? You'd be inviting nothing but trouble. And then he says in verses 7 and 8, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What would turn someone from a persecutor of Jesus into a lover of Jesus? What what could turn a man from being devoted to the destruction of the Christian church to a man who is giving his life to plant Christian churches? And who would eventually die as a martyr for this 
faith. One thing and one thing only. We see it here at the end of verse 8. He appeared also to me. Jesus is alive. It's good news. The second thing that we can say that, uh, that about the gospel and how it was regarded by the early Christians is this. It was good news that they proclaimed. It was good news that they proclaimed. Again, verses 1 and 2. Paul here talks about the fact that the gospel was preached. The gospel I preached to you. And it's interesting that the word that's translated here in the ESV as, as preached in verses 1 and 2 is another form of, of the word gospel. And so literally in verse 1, Paul is, is talking about the gospel I gospeled to you. He's not necessarily talking about sort of formal preaching, although on occasion that was certainly done He's talking about just the announcement of the good news that that ordinary early Christians were were making to their family members and their friends and their neighbors and their acquaintances all over the world as they spread the gospel. New Testament scholar Michael Green wrote a, a famous book about the early church and evangelism in the early church. And, uh, and he wrote this. Michael Green said, if we could advance the slide. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances and homes and wine shops on walks and around the market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically. You know, they, the early Christians weren't stressed out about memorizing some long canned presentation of the gospel. Uh, they weren't stressed out about trying to get people to, to say a, a, a sinner's prayer. They, they were simply announcing the good news of what Jesus had done and then trusting the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of people and open the hearts of people. They were inviting uh, their, uh, their lost friends to, to, to come to Christian gatherings. Listen, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, what a time for you to invite the people in your life who, who aren't actively involved in a church home. Invite them to come with you, to meet you here, to, to, to be a part of this celebration of the resurrection where the gospel will be proclaimed very clearly. Join with God, partner with Him in reaching out to them next Sunday. That's what the early Christians did. It was a gospel that they proclaimed. Third, it was good news that they had received and believed. Again, in verses 1 and 2. We see here that uh, Paul talks about the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Later on, he talks about the fact that they had believed it. So the early Christians were not passive recipients of the gospel. It was something that they believed. They had trusted in this good news. They had trusted in Christ, in his finished work. They were relying on that, resting in that. They had received it personally. They had welcomed this good news. They had welcomed Jesus into their lives. In other words, it was a personal commitment. You know, every time that we fly we do this and we, we fly today we always get tickets on, online 
and, and then we drive to the airport, and then we go to the ticket counter. We maybe check bags. Uh, we pass through security. We walk down to the gate. But at some point, you have to get on the plane. You have to make a very personal commitment and trust and get on board. There's no being saved without a personal commitment to Jesus. You have to put your life into his hands and receive him as Savior and King. John 1.12 says this. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And listen, in the early church... When people became children of God, this was not a private thing. They confessed him publicly. What was their public confession that they had become a child of God? It wasn't walking the aisle. There weren't any aisles to walk down. No buildings at that point. It was baptism. It was baptism. For two millennia, two thousand years plus, the way that Christians have confessed that I have become a child of God is by being baptized. Today, we celebrate one of the ordinances of our faith, the Lord's Supper. The other ordinance of our faith is baptism. And if you've made a commitment to Jesus, but you haven't yet been baptized as a believer then, friend, you need to do that. This is not church tradition. This is, this is a biblical command. Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come straight from Jesus. Baptism is an issue of obedience. And listen, you'll be so glad that you did. You'll be so glad that you obeyed the Lord. You'll be so glad that you took a stand for Jesus. So if you've made a commitment to Christ, but you haven't been baptized, you let me know. You let one of our pastors know. Let me know after this service. <laughs> call the office, whatever. Give me a call, whatever. You let us know. We'll talk with you and, and, and we'll make a, a date for you to be baptized. And listen, it's going to be such a powerful moment in your life. And we want it, your church family is going to celebrate with you. But listen, if you can't take a stand for Jesus in a setting like this where you're going to be celebrated and applauded for doing so, then how can you possibly stand for Jesus out there in the world where you're not always going to be applauded? Take a stand. Take a public stand for him. Be baptized as a believer. Well, fourth, we see that it was good news about the one who was saving them. Good news about the one who was saving them. Again, verses 1 and 2. Paul here says, The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, when most Christians today talk about being saved, they're talking about being saved from the penalty of sin. They're talking about the fact that I've been forgiven of my sins, and therefore, I am going to heaven and not hell when I die. And certainly being saved from the penalty of sin is a part of salvation. But for the early Christians, it was not just a matter of being saved from the penalty of sin. 
when they talked about being saved, they were talking about a fuller picture than that. When they talked about being saved, they were talking about being saved not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. They would say, I am no longer a slave to sin. The Holy Spirit has given me power to live differently. Fresh power for living. Right here, right now, in the present. And not only that, when the early Christians talked about being saved, they were also talking about something that was going to happen in the future. They were talking about the fact that their king had risen from the dead and that he was coming again, and that when he came again, they also were going to be raised. They were going to have a resurrection body in the future. That's part of what they were talking about when they talked about salvation. I mean, how many presentations of the gospel do we hear today that don't even talk about the resurrection? That would never have happened in the early church. The resur- they would always have talked about the, the resurrection because they would have talked about the fact that, that, that not only did Jesus die for our sins to make us right, but he is risen from the dead and he's coming again to make the whole world right. It's going to be a new creation. It's going to be a, a place that we're going to, uh, to, to live with Jesus, a new heaven and earth, with, with, with resurrection bodies like the one that he was raised with. And it's going to be a world of love. It's going to be a world of justice. There's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more death. It's going to be a world of, 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 of unity. It's going to be a world uh, where we serve the Lord together. It's going to be a world where Jesus is properly praised and honored. And listen, our task now is to live out in the present what Jesus is going to do in the future. One day, the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Our task now is to, is to anticipate that by living, living out that future in this present time. And see, that's another thing. That, that when the early Christians talked about being saved... They would have talked about the fact that they were, they, were, they were saved for a purpose. They were saved to serve their king in this world. And instead of today where we talk about, well, you know, I'll make Jesus a part of my story. No, the early Christians saw themselves as caught up in his story. Swept up in his story. And something that continually reminded them of that story was the Lord's Supper. When they took the bread, when they took the cup, they were reminded of how deeply they were loved by the Lord. And they were reminded of their task to spread that love until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts for 
taking part in this table. We pray that if there are, there are things in our hearts that we are harboring that are not honoring to you, that this would be a time of cleansing and repentance as we examine our hearts. We pray that if there is unforgiveness in our hearts towards someone else, if there, that the, if there is a grudge in our hearts towards someone else, that we would turn from that, that we would repent of that. We pray that if there is unconfessed sin in our lives, things that are hindering our fellowship with you, that we would repent of that. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have made a way, that you have made a a, a remedy for our sin. As we just saw in this text, we are all sinners. We thank you that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again and that he's coming again for all who believe in him. We pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to him, closer to the Savior who died and rose again for us. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you're here today as one who has turned to Jesus and trusted in him as your Savior, your Lord, your King, then he invites you to take part in this special meal that he is ordained. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. 
I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.